0: Study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider your word, as always, we ask for insight and understanding into who you are and into who we are and also into the relationship that you're calling us into with you, with each other, and with ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Great to see those of you who have braved the uh, wet weather here in, in New York, and all of you on Zoom who hopefully didn't have to brave any weather at all certainly not in your apartments and wherever you are, but we're glad that, that you're here on Zoom. We're glad that you made it here. You know, in New York, there is nothing worse than rain. Snow is, is, is easier to get around in than rain. So thank you for making it here in person today. We're glad that you are here. Alex was absolutely right about the, uh, about the many things, many things Alex was right about, but about our fruit person, but I've gotta say, and Sylvia, my friend Sylvia can attest to this, that. The Upper East Side 87th Street fruit guy never goes home all year round. So that, that, we call that East Side Strong. We, that's East Side Strong. He is out there. I think there is like a 15 degrees, they're gone. Anyway, we're rambling. We're glad everybody is here today. We are in the midst of this winter series on top questions you asked uh, Google. And uh, I, we, we should have, a top 10 biblical questions you ask Google, because I think there's probably some other questions you're asking Google, we're not talking about those yet, that's a whole nother series that, that's going to take a lot longer to deal with, but top ten, uh, top 10 religious questions you ask Google, and so today we're dealing with the question of what is the Bible, and so we went to John, John chapter 5 where Jesus talks, we are, everybody is over here, so I'm just talking over here, not everyone, we, it's, it's slim here in, in person, Zoomers. Again, the rain has inhibited people from coming, but um, I'm just going to talk to you over here. All right, so top questions that we asked Google, what is the Bible? That's our question today. And so a little background on the text that we read today in John chapter 5, right? So uh, the background is that Jesus had just finished healing a person, somebody who could not walk. Jesus went, healed them so that they were able to walk. The issue with that is that the religious leaders were around and were not happy. Why were they not happy? Well, if you go to John chapter 5, verse 16, we see the full story. So, because Jesus was doing these things, meaning he was healing people on the Sabbath, the religious leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I am too working. So, I don't know what you guys are doing on, your sa- on, on Sabbath, but God is always uh, at work. That was Jesus' argument to them who were protesting against his uh, work, if you will, of healing on the Sabbath. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the religious leaders were told, uh, tried to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That was a big deal. So you can make a pretty strong case that Jesus' observance of the Sabbath really impacted the religious leaders and their desire to kill him. But certainly once he starts talking about God as being part of his family, that was just too much. And so here in our story in John chapter 5, Jesus is getting healing on the Sabbath and this in the religious leaders' mind created an apparent ethical challenge because they had a very strict interpretation of what it meant to Uh, do work and specifically work on the sabbath and healing was just not a part of what you did on the sabbath apparently of course none of them were healing anyone so there's some irony there but this was forbidden in their minds and so in our text of emphasis jesus is clarifying his uh, understanding of the purpose of the bible so that's the the question today our question that you asked google what is the bible jesus is making it very clear and so it's important to note though, that when he's talking about the scriptures, as he does here, he's talking about what many Christians consider the Old Testament, or maybe more accurately described as the Hebrew Bible, right? So 39 different books, and I'm using the term books fairly loosely here, because some of them are uh, political records, some of them are, uh, some of the, the, the writings of the ancient scriptures were Uh, were civil records of what happened in in monarchs some of them were uh, literally lists of laws Uh, the book of numbers my favorite one is a lot of numbers right so we're using books uh, loosely there are there's also uh, songs and psalms there's poetry there's erotic literature I mean the ancient scriptures is full of all kinds of stuff and so we talk about the Bible the ancient, the Bible of Jesus' day, we're talking about the Old Testament, which is often referred to as the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's made up of all kinds of different uh, literature. And so Jesus is clarifying here that all this literature is leading to one thing. And so in our text, again, of Ephesus, Jesus is reframing the entire ancient Scriptures by saying that they testify about Himself, that all of these... Writings, all of these uh, 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 different forms of literature that the religious leaders had been studying diligently, that they were all designed to lead to the revelation of who Jesus is. It's a pretty bold claim, but of course Jesus is not. This is not the first time that Jesus makes a bold claim, and so he is saying, "Listen, all that you've read, all that you've studied, you're missing the point. If you don't end up receiving who." I am. And so this, of course, would have a direct impact on how they were to, and people from that point forward, were to look and read the Bible and read the Scriptures, okay? The the Scriptures, according to Jesus, what their purpose is is to lead to a better understanding of who God is. According to Jesus, the Bible in its entirety is designed to help us to understand who God is and to bring us to faith in him. The Bible is about bringing us to faith in God. And so when reading the Bible or listening to the Bible, because we must acknowledge that not everybody is able to read the Bible even today. So whether you read the Bible or listen to the Bible, and of course throughout human history there's been a lot of times when nobody or very few people could read. So whether you're reading the Bible or listening to the Bible or however you engage with the Bible, according to Jesus, the purpose of the Bible is to lead us to a better understanding of who God is, And so this means that God is always the primary character of the Bible. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Moses. The primary character of the Bible is God himself. The Bible is about God's revelation of who he is and what work he's been doing on behalf of human history and on behalf of each of us to bring reconciliation to this broken world. And so God is the main character of the Bible. This leads us to, to an understanding of how God works. That's the idea. How does God interact with a, a man and a woman who utterly reject Him and turn their back on Him? Check the story of uh, Adam and Eve. How does God contend with the first act of human violence? Check the story of Cain. How does God deal with a monarch that runs wild and proclaims to be of his, uh, of, of God's, but doesn't act in a godly way. Check the story of Saul. And so over and over and over again, you have these stories of broken human beings, but how God interacts with them. That is the heart of the Bible, who God is, how he interacts with us as humans when we do all the crazy things that we do. And so Jesus is like, look, if you've been studying the scriptures diligently and you haven't gotten an understanding of who God is, something is off. You're studying the Scriptures and don't get a better understanding of who God is, then you're not doing it properly. And so the Bible is designed to help us to understand who God is so that we can receive life. Jesus is like, if you you come to the Bible and you come to me, you are going to receive life. He said, you study the Scriptures to understand eternal life, But if those scriptures lead to me, then you receive that eternal life. And the irony is, the irony is they're studying and not getting this life. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Again, another bold claim of Jesus. And the implications, again, are everything ends in Jesus. This is the point of the the story. This is the reason that the Bible exists. Uh, John, Jesus' disciple, he goes even further in John chapter 1 and says, in the beginning was the Word, all right. and so if you're thinking of the Word as the Scriptures, John quickly disabuses us of the idea. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John is saying the Word is not just written uh, uh, literature. It's not written Scripture. The Word is a, a human, a being. The Word is Jesus. And so... When we think about what the Bible is, Jesus is making it clear. The Bible is that place in which we, again, come to an understanding of who God is and how he interacts with human beings in all kinds of different circumstances and, and cases. And, and so we can understand how God interacts with us as we look at how God interacts with humans in the Bible. So this is what God, Jesus is calling us into, that a, a, a relationship with the Bible that leads to a relationship with Him, we engage with the Bible, that should lead us to embrace faith in God. But if we're honest, this isn't what often happens when we read the Bible, or we engage the Bible, in, in it, that the Bible leads to faith necessarily. For many people, in fact, reading the Bible is depressing. It's, it's, it's challenging, and so that leads to our question today. What inhibits us from coming to Jesus for life even when we're studying the Scriptures diligently. So, by the way, you are not going to study the Scriptures more diligently than a religious Jewish religious leader in the first century. When they were weaned as children, they start memorizing large portions of the Bible. So by the time you're an adult and you've you've made it to be a religious leader, you have memorized significant portions of the Hebrew Scriptures, right? That's diligent. You could recite Somebody could give you a place and you would be able to go right there and to be able to just carry on by reciting it from memory. That's diligent. Jesus was adamant. You you diligently are searching the Scriptures and you're looking for life. But then he asserts that that life comes not from the Scriptures themselves, but from him. And so what inhibits us uh, from coming to Jesus for life, even when we might be studying the Scriptures Diligently now, I have three responses to this. There are more, but you know, you know. If you've been around, I love three. I Somebody asks a question, I give three responses. It's, It's very annoying, right, Sarah? Sarah's already shaking her head. She asks a question. I've got three responses. That's how it goes. Staff meetings are incredibly long because this is what happens. Anyway bear with me three responses to this question how can you study the scriptures diligently and not receive life in jesus well i would assert to you first of all that we read the bible and got get caught up in how far the humans in the bible fall short of the ideal for human behavior and then we also think about ourselves so we read these stories and we're like what is going on here and then we reflect on our own lives and we're like we are terrible I'm, I'm not feeling good about myself when I read the stories of the Bible. You know, there is a lot of stuff going on in the Bible. There's a lot of war in the Bible. We're in a time of, of, of world warfare right now. Well, the Bible doesn't give us a solace in there. There's a lot of war in the Bible. There's a lot of continual lack of goodness from human beings, including beings that people, that, uh, people and Christians often have lifted up as uh, heroes. The heroes... The supposed heroes in the Bible, they are very rarely heroic. In fact, you've heard it said before, there are no heroes in the Bible. There's only one hero in the Bible. Uh, The heroes that we make up in the Bible, they're not great people. And so this can be depressing, this can be challenging. If you're new to the Bible, you're like, what in the world is going on? So war, violence, hatred, racism, sexism, inequality, all in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is full of it. And so if you go to the Bible expecting that you're going to find some heroic characters and they're going to be encouraging to you about the nature of humanity, you're not going to find it because it is a mess in there. And so when it comes to the human behavior, the Bible just shows us that there is a shocking and always has been a shocking lack of compassion from human to human. Think of... Of Abraham, my favorite example is Abraham. You know, Abraham is considered the father of faith for three of the world's great religions, right? So Christianity, our friends in Islam, and our friends of Judaism all looked to Abraham as that guy, the father of faith, right? And so, there's danger of making Abraham a hero. Abraham, not heroic. And uh, example number one is Genesis chapter 12. I like the story of Abraham because he was married to a woman named Sarah. And you may know that I am married also to a woman named Sarah. And, uh, but i got to say, and I'm not lifting myself up here, but I have never done what Abraham did to his wife, Sarah. So in Genesis chapter 12, the, the supposed hero of Abraham, we're told that there was a famine, and Abraham had to go down to Egypt to escape the famine, and so he takes his family down to Egypt. But when he gets down there, uh, he thinks to himself, there's a problem. My wife is smoking hot. Okay, I've thought that about, you know, that, that's a problem I have too. So just to be, to be clear, so I have a Sarah who's also very hot. Um this is getting uncomfortable now is it okay we're just going to keep moving on anyway Abraham goes down to to Egypt and he's he realizes I have a hot wife and if there's other people down there they don't know who I am and if they notice this which surely they're going to notice then uh, they're, they're going to they're going to kill me and they're going to take her away and so he comes up with this brilliant plan I'm going to tell people that she is my sister uh, we're not going to mention the wife part. Now, technically, this is true, which is a whole other story that we're not going to get into right now, how you marry your sister. But um, anyway, so he does this. God. So the, and then the, the ruler, the pharaoh, sees Sarah and is like, yes, she must be mine. And she brings him into, her, into, uh, into his... Again, I've never had this problem with, with my Sarah, but brings him into the, the court... And has every intention that she he, she will be one of his wives. God, who is a better provider than Abraham, is like, oh no! And so he creates all kinds of chaos for Pharaoh to the point where Pharaoh has to go to Abraham and go, what is going on? And it comes out that Abraham was lying, and it's a big mess. But thank God, God protected Sarah, and and nothing happened. So now we were earlier this morning we were trying to determine because we want equity and equality, whether Abraham was also hot, Um, just to make sure that, and Michelle assured us that the answer must be no, or it would have been mentioned, which totally makes sense, because if a man who, you know, a man wrote this story, and you would certainly think that they would want to highlight the hotness of Abraham, if that was the case, so anyway, so... You know, Abraham is maybe having a little psychosis about his own attractiveness with his attractive wife. Anyway, so this, this is the story. Now, you would think Abraham learns his lesson and he matures, and as he goes on in life, this never happens again. But you keep reading Genesis 14, 15. You get to Genesis 20, that's just uh, eight chapters away. Guess what happens? Same thing again. Abraham goes to another place. And he's worried again about his the attractiveness of his wife, and he's worried about his own life. And he's like, "I'm going to sister, sister, married. I don't know anything about what you're talking about." Same exact thing. And so these are the people that Abraham is the father of faith. Is there anything less faithful than worrying so much about your life that you're going to deny who your wife is? That is not noble. That is not heroic. So. If you go to the Bible and you're like, man, I'm going to find with these heroic characters how, how faithful they are, you are going to be disappointed every time because there are just no heroes in the Bible. There's only one hero in the Bible. Okay, so that, that's, if you go there, you're going to be disappointed because you're going to recognize the limitations of the human character, including your own character. Secondly, why, why do we struggle with actually getting to faith in, in Jesus, even though we might be diligently studying the scriptures, sometimes when we read the Bible, we don't make this dis- distinction between that which is descriptive and that which is a prescriptive. This is an important note. If you were, by the way, if you were in the, the, the class, you know, we have these whole life classes now where we're talking about all kinds of fun subjects. We had a class, how to read and interpret the Bible. Some of you were there, and we talked about this prescriptive versus descriptive, And so that class is now over, and it's transitioned into a Bible study. By the way, if you want a Bible study on Wednesday night at 7, Priscilla, right? 7 o'clock on Zoom. Uh, We're now talking about, and Michelle's been leading us through John, using the skills that we learned in how to read and interpret the Bible. But I think you can join, even if you weren't in that class. Anyway, all right. Prescriptive versus descriptive. An important note. Sometimes we go to the Bible and think the entire Bible is prescriptive. It's, it's a, a communication of how we should behave. But if you go at the Bible thinking that the Bible is primarily prescriptive, so prescriptive how you should, should act, descriptive how people did act, if you go thinking prescriptive, you don't have to read very far to find out, whoa, there again is some crazy stuff in the Bible. And if it's prescriptive, it's prescribing how we should act, it's not giving a great prescription. Again, war inequality, uh, uh, gender inequality, all kinds of inequality. It's it's a mess, and so if you go at the Bible without the understanding that most of the Bible is descriptive, it's describing what happened because the Bible is the story of God working throughout human history to, to, to rescue and save humans, and so that story has to include why humans need rescuing, and that means there's a lot of mess. There's a lot of mess in the Bible. HBO. If the Bible was filmed, it would definitely have to be on HBO. And there was some stuff that would not even make it. Game of Thrones has absolutely zero on the Bible, right? I mean, it is a mess in there. You start reading, and you're like, "What is? What is going on?" Um, I had my I had a, a lunch or breakfast yesterday with a, a, a friend of mine who is uh, is atheist. And so I asked him, I'm in this class, and I asked, hey, can I interview you with some questions? I want to listen, I want to understand, you know, where you're coming from. And so he was like, absolutely. So we went to breakfast, and I had my questions. And, like, top question number one was, have you ever, you know, or his response was, have you ever read the Bible? It is an absolute train wreck. There is such a mess going on in the Bible. So this was one of the reasons that he was like, I... I can't embrace something that comes from this. I mean, this is, there's nothing but war and pestilence and, and, and inequality and people treating each, each other terribly. How can that be a religious scripture? Well, again, prescriptive, it's a problem, but if the Bible, as we're asserting, is primarily descriptive, it changes the game. This is a story of God working with messed up people. How do you interact with people who are train wrecks? The Bible is primarily uh, descriptive. There is prescriptive things, certainly in the Bible. I mean, when God comes down and he takes his finger, laser style, and writes in a table of stone, that, that is prescriptive, right? Clearly, God is like, this is how you should behave. Do this, don't do this, boom, here's the rock. It's written in it. But there's very little of that, quite frankly, in the Bible. There's very little of God saying, this is how you're to operate for all human time. All right, so that's a challenge. We go not understanding the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. Finally, thinking about this question, how can you study the scripture diligently and not end up getting to Jesus? Well, when we read the Bible looking for a bunch of tips about how to live, you know, the Bible as an instruction manual. If that's the primary purpose of the Bible, you're going to have a difficult time getting to, to, to Jesus. I would assert to you, again, as we've talked about many times before, the Bible is not an instruction manual. It is a story. And so when we approach the Bible as an instruction manual, it's very easy to get very confused. We've already talked about descriptive versus prescriptive, but there are a lot of other things that happen in the Bible. And if you're like, uh, okay, what tip can I learn here? I mean, there are even stories, uh, there are even stories where God works out things in the end, but the getting there is a little challenging where you're like, oh, okay, well, this is, this is how I should operate. This worked for them. I'm going to take step one, step two, step three. Um, I think of the story of Gideon. That's a great example. Uh, Gideon, who keeps testing God with these things, and, and God is like... Okay, and so he matches the test. And so sometimes we're like with well, the story of Gideon, well, I just need to put out my fleece. That's not the point of the story, by the way. The point of the story is not that you should keep testing God and, and keep asking him by putting out your fleece. The point of the story is God is faithful even when we're a little dumb and we keep not trusting. All right, so again, the story is how does God interact with dumb human beings? Right, this is it. Right, so if we're like, oh, oh I want a tip. I sh- every time God asks me to do something, I should, I should uh, uh, put out a cloth and ask for something to happen to it. That's not the point of the story of Gideon. So we go to the Bible looking for tips, or is the Bible an instruction manual, we're going to fall short, we're going to get confused, because there's some things you do that, you, that they did in ancient times that you do now, and they're like, this didn't work. We also have to be care- careful of moralizing everything in the Bible. Well, you know, this, 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 this issue is clearly a moral and ethical issue. Well, that may be the case for the time and space, but not everything works that way. We also have a, an issue of using the Bible to predict the future, right? Again, we're looking for the tip. In this case, like a secret tip. Ooh, I found something out that nobody else knows when this is going to happen, when that's going to happen. Because the Bible does talk about the future, but you know what the Bible talks about the future most often in very vague terms, very mysterious terms. Uh, The New Testament says, by the way, prophecy, which we often refer to as, like, about the future, that prophecy was not designed for us to know exactly what was going to happen in the future. Prophecy was designed so that when something happens, we can be like, oh, God was in that. See, because it's the story of God working on behalf of humankind, so when something happens, we're like, oh, yes, God knows what he's doing, he knows what's going to happen, but we don't know the details of everything that's going to happen in the future. That is not the point. So if you go to the Bible looking for tips, you're always going to not be satisfied. Because sometimes the tips don't work that we find. We think, well, this worked for Gideon, or this worked... Nah. What do we do? All right, Jesus says the Bible is to, to lead to him. How do we transform the way we look at the, the Bible and use the Bible? If the Bible really is a tool to help us in this relationship and help us to understand uh, who God is. How do we experience this? What do we do? How do we overcome these challenges that we have? And this is where we come back to Jesus. How did Jesus use the Bible? How did Jesus use the Bible? Jesus knew what he was doing when he came to the Bible and how to use the Bible. And there are a couple great examples, two I want to share with you. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 4. Thinking about, okay, we need to reframe what the Bible is to us. It's not about heroes. It's not about how amazing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those people were. And it's not about just getting tips. Um, So what is it about? How do you use the Bible uh, properly? Matthew chapter 4. So this is a story where Jesus is baptized. Okay, and immediately after him being baptized, there's actually this mysterious statement that almost sounds like he was... He is uh, swept away, and he's out in the desert. So he's baptized, and then he's he's out in the desert. Okay, and so he's out there for forty days. He's hungry, he's lonely. He's experiencing what humans experience when you are by yourself without food in the in the desert for forty days. And uh, we're told that this this is a time when Jesus' great adversary, uh, the Satan, the devil, decides he's gonna he's got a, he's got a moment. He knows that. Uh, the great creator god now has now limited himself and become human so he's going to take advantage of this and so he shows up on the scene and we find it listed here in matthew chapter four verse four or four it says that uh, the devil tempted jesus but jesus answered it is written right so jesus is going back to those hebrew scriptures of old it is written humans shall not live by bread alone but on every word that comes out of the mouth of god and so then the devil took him to the holy city to Jerusalem, and he had him stand at the highest point of the temple, that, 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 that ancient uh, structure. And uh, the devil said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from it, for it is written. See, now the devil's getting tricky. He's like, Okay, we're quoting scripture now. I got it. I got where we're going. So now he starts quoting scripture. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone tricky but jesus answered it is also written don't put the lord your god to a test again finally the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor all this i will give to you satan says now we see that's wow how can satan say this well jesus calls satan the prince of this world right and uh, the, the, in our teen Bible class, we actually last week studied uh, uh, Job. And in Job chapter 1 and 2, we see Satan, the same as Satan, showing up to this uh, heavenly United Nations gathering uh, with other angels, representing planet Earth. The implication is when Adam and Eve, they fell, they basically turned over the governorship of planet Earth to Satan and Jesus is recognizing and acknowledging that throughout the New Testament. Well, now uh, Satan is taking advantage of the supposed power he has over planet Earth, and he's saying to Jesus, (laughs) you're in your weakened state. All you have to do is bow down to me. If you bow down to me and worship me, you'll have all of this, Satan says. He's exercising his power of, of governorship over planet Earth. But Jesus again says to him, away from me, Satan, the accuser, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left and angels came and attended Jesus. How did Jesus use the Bible? Jesus used the Bible uh, to, to comfort him in times of challenge by acknowledging and recognizing who God was. God is the provider of our needs. When you're tempted... When you're tempted that to, 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 to provide you for yourself in a way that's going to create problems or be unethical, Jesus is like, "No, no. God is the provider. It's about God's character. Uh, God doesn't appreciate cynical challenges to his trustworthiness. That's what we learned. Just, just throw yourself down. Satan says, and got, uh, Jesus is like, "No, no. God doesn't appreciate cynical challenges to his trustworthiness. And finally, God is the only being in the universe. Is worthy of being worshiped. So when Jesus is challenged, he goes back to what the Bible taught him about the character of God because Jesus had to learn this. He was a little baby once. He learned about the character of God, about his own character through the Bible. All right, consider this second example. How does Jesus use the Bible? Jesus is nailed to a a cross, He's, he's dying, he's being murdered. This is Matthew chapter 27. And we're told that from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all of the land. But about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, and the the English Bible actually translates this for us, it means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, some Bible students have said, Jesus is clearly having an existential crisis. He is at the last moments of his life and he is just, he's questioning everything. He's, he's, he's asking God, why, is it, why have you forsaken me in this moment? All right? I suggest to you that is not what's happening at, at all. Jesus, in his most uh, desperate hour on the cross, Jesus already had his existential moment of crisis, by the way, that was in the garden the night before. Jesus is ready for this moment. So he is on the cross, he is dying my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I suggest to thee that Jesus is reciting his memory verse from Sabbath school. See, he's going back. He's going back to that which he memorized because if you any Jewish uh, young boy in Sabbath school is going to learn the memory verses, and one of the memory verses is Psalm chapter 22. That you do know that 10% of what Jesus says in the New Testament is a direct quote to something from the Hebrew scriptures, and Jesus' most favorite book of the old testament to quote is the psalms which i think is cool because the psalms are in essence poet poetry and songs and you know i don't know about you but some and i can't not sing to save my life but there are times when i need a little comfort when it's nice to sing a little song you know you get the words to a familiar a, a song of encouragement we've been doing that throughout human history this is what jesus is doing he goes to his favorite psalm psalm chapter 22 he memorized it as a kid in in sabbath school class and so he's there so psalm chapter 22 he's there on the cross and what does he say my god my god why hast thou forsaken me if you go to psalm chapter 22 that's exactly how psalm chapter 22 uh, verse 1 starts my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me so far from my cries of anguish my God, I cry out by day, but you did not answer. By night, I don't find any rest. If you read the first half of Psalm chapter 22, it is depressing. It is gloomy. And so Jesus is, he is there, and he's at his last moments, and he's reciting his Bible verse, Psalm chapter 22. But you keep reading in Psalm 22, and about halfway through, there's a distinct shift in tone. This is Psalm 22, verses 16 through 21. Dogs surround me. So you imagine that Jesus is there. And who's surrounding him? The Roman, uh, the Roman guard. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. This is the psalmist writing. Hundreds of years before Jesus, Jesus is now reciting his Bible verse. And when I mean his Bible verse, I mean his Bible verse. This is a Bible memory verse that was written about him. And so he's there and he's dying. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots from my garment. <laughs> His Bible verse is giving him comfort. This is a prophecy. 800 years before this, when it was written, it was a prophecy about what's to come, but now it's being fulfilled. And so what is Jesus doing? He's taking advantage of the prophecy because he knows God is in this. God knew that this was going to happen. They divide my clothes among them and he cast lots for my garment. Imagine how comforting that would be. (laughs) I mean, it's disturbing still. You're dying. You're in your last moments, but you're singing this song under his breath. But you, Lord, you're not far from me. See, the, the tone now changes. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of these dogs. Rescue me, you me, rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then we skip down to the end of Psalm chapter 22 and verse 30. Posterity will serve me. Future generations will be told about the Lord's work. They will proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it. That's the end of Psalm chapter 22. Now, you can, trans- you can translate Psalm 22 verse 31, not as he has done it, but it is finished. And so we have Jesus on the cross in his most desperate moment reciting his Bible verse. My God, my God, why has that forsaken me? It's not an existential cry of despair. It's a cry of comfort. He's going back to the Bible because the Bible teaches us who God really is, and that God doesn't give up on us, even in our most desperate moments. And so Jesus is having a desperate moment, and what does he do? He goes back to the Bible for comfort about who God is. You will rescue me. You're coming to rescue me. And of course, three days later, who was there to rescue Jesus from the grave? He rested for a Sabbath, and then he got up out of the grave because God did exactly what he told Jesus he was going to do in Psalm 22. He was going to come to his rescue. This is how to engage the Bible. The Bible that tells who God is and how he's been working on behalf of you and me and all of humankind since the very, very beginning. Since Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 when he promised that there would be a Savior who was going to come and fix everything. Jesus used the Bible for his, its primary purpose, to be reminded of who God is and how much he loves and cares for him. This is Jesus' desire for all of us, that when we go to the Bible, we aren't overwhelmed and depressed by how miserable humanity is. There is a lot of misery in the Bible. But if we focus on the humans in the story, you're going to miss the point because the main character of the story is God. God who is calling us into relationship with Him. God who is longing to reveal His true character to us. There have been a lot of of fake, fake news about who God is. And God is like, no more. You're going to get the full story. And that full story is embodied in the work of Jesus. And so the good news is as we embrace faith, in this Jesus, who knew how to use the Bible better than we ever will, and use the Bible properly in its right place, as we embrace faith in this Jesus, we can have a new picture of the Bible ourselves. We can understand that the Bible is God's love letter to you and me. And that if we study it diligently and miss out on the main point of this fact, we're going to miss everything. And so Jesus' invitation is, keep studying the Bible. Keep studying the Bible, but let it lead you to me. And in me is true eternal life. We have that uh, hope today. I don't know what's going on in your experience. I don't know what your experience is with the Bible. I would imagine you've tried to read the Bible and you're like, this is a mess or it's confusing you. You got to Numbers and you're like, this is a bunch of numbers, boring. But I, 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 I promise you that as you embrace faith with Jesus, Jesus can transform your picture of the Bible so you start seeing, ah, this is why this is in here. God working with broken humans, not giving up, not giving up again, not giving up again, even when they did this and did that and it's still not giving up all the way down to Jesus dying on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's not despair, it's hope that there is a God who never, ever gives up. May God transform our view of what the Bible is and help us as we engage the Bible to come to faith in the great God of the universe who is calling us into relationship with Him. May He do that within us today. Amen.